Welcome to the Agronomy and Farm Management Podcast. I'm Amanda. And I'm Elizabeth. Thanks for joining us today. Welcome back to the podcast. Uh, Last episode, we talked with Mark Lautz and Aaron Hager about water hemp and what a monster it really can be with how quickly it can develop resistance. And we left you hanging. And today they're back with us to talk more about management and how we can can better deal with this this weed that can really devastate fields. What are you guys doing as far as management goes, especially when you mentioned this field that has six-way resistance? I mean, well, you know, it, it's, is, I think I mentioned in our last uh, episode that we first started looking very intently at, at water hemp in 1996. And in 1997, we put forth an effort to actually come out with a, with a guide of, of management recommendations. And we went through all the possible chemistries that at that time were effective. But essentially, the, the whole take-home summary of that bulletin was that water hemp is a species that really cannot be controlled by a single tactic. You can try to contain it for a while, but because of the genetic diversity in the species, eventually we're going to run out of herbicide options. That's, you know, when we wrote that, art, when we wrote that bulletin, I think we had resistance maybe to ALS herbicides and atrazine, and that was it. So now we've added five to that since 1997. So anybody who thinks that, you know, anything is going to be infallible against water hemp, they really haven't dealt with it long enough to understand that it may, it may be effective for a while, but we're at a point now where number one, we are literally out of new jugs that we can open up. And number two, what products, what active ingredients still remain effective, that really should be the focus and the target of what we can do to make sure that they maintain their effectiveness in the future. Because the idea that we're going to see a lot of new active ingredients brought in from the industry in the very near future, I can't really see that happening. Do you expect that any any product we use against it repeatedly will probably eventually develop resistance? Uh, so far, the track record on that has been 100%, yes. So, um, so someone's mm-hmm. using glufosinate repeatedly mm-hmm. or dicamp, I think right. we have to assume at this point that they'll break they'll break those on water hemp eventually. You, you know, you, that's a good point uh, that I wanted to mention, Mark. Um, you know, when we used to hear back in the early days of, of the Roundup Ready era that it was infallible, we're never going to see resistance evolve to it. And I guess I would make the argument that 1996 was probably the first year that we really began selecting for glyphosate resistance in summer annual species. Because before 96, before the introduction of the soybean technology, the predominant use of glyphosate in soybean production was as a burn down against winter annual species. So 96 really kicked it off and eventually we see where we are now. But you mentioned dicamba or even the new 240 technology. We can't make that same argument with those technologies because we've sprayed dicamba, we sprayed 240 in Illinois for over 50 years now. So we already have 50 years of selection that's taken place. So it's not necessarily that we're, the, the technology is new in soybean, but the selection intensity for resistance in things like water hemp, it's not new. Right. So, um, so specific to herbicides, do you make a couple general recommendations within all that about, I mean, there's, there's herbicides, there's tillage issues, there's seed stop, you know, preventing seed at the end of the year. There's, you know, some other uh, non-chemical yep. methods, yep. I suppose. So right. like, what, what's the total package there? Sure. Sort of? Step number one is make sure that we're not putting any seed in the ground with any existing water hemp. And that 
you know, either control it by mechanical cult, uh, tillage before you plant or a, a, a adequate burn down application. But you really do not want to put a stand, uh, you know, seed, corn, soybean, either any crop in the ground if you've got water hemp that's not been controlled as emerged, because that's simply a recipe for a replant. And then number two, of course, we still encourage people to start out with good solid residual herbicide programs. Um, margins are tight. Nobody has excess money that they just want to throw away. But the fact of the matter is that we really need to pay attention to the rates of the residual herbicides. Those rates are set for a reason. But you have to remember that, to my knowledge, there is no herbicide or herbicide rate of a residual product that was ever selected solely on water hemp control. It's selected to give you the broadest spectrum of control against most of the weed species that you can. So you may want to cut it back, but that product may be marginal to begin with. For example, on water hemp, if you reduce that rate too much, you're not going to realize the benefit or the value of what you could have got at that labeled rate. And then, of course, on the post-application timing, number one, you've got to know what sorts of resistance issues that you could be facing. Have you had any of your populations screened before by an independent laboratory? We have that service available at the University of Illinois. If you think you may have resistance, again, that could be a recipe for disaster in 2020. It's really better to know ahead of time whether or not that, that whatever your post options are going to be, is it going to be effective or it's not going to be effective. And then timing really gets to be critically important uh, regardless of the post product, um, whether it be glyphosate or a dicamba type product, a 240 diphenyl ether. We've never shied away from the recommendation of trying to control water here before it exceeds four inches in height. And you mentioned last time one of the indications of resistance is popping through that post application earlier. So really, I think being on top of scouting mm -hmm. and seeing, okay, I'm having early breakthrough, it might not just be whatever. Yeah, I mean, whatever, it might be right. The, the resistance in, in soil applied herbicides is a bit insidious because most all these products break at some point eventually. And so are you seeing the water hemp come up now because you have resistance or is it the fact that, well, maybe we did skimp on the rate just a little bit too much. Maybe we didn't get enough rainfall. Maybe we got too much rainfall. So it's, it's not always clear cut black and white, but you know, again, and, and that's part of the problem. Generally speaking, if everything worked with a residual product and you have these first flushes of water hemp, if there is resistance issues, those are going to be the ones that come up first. Given that it's not a cure-all for the post-emergence, then would you still advocate trying to mix two things that two herbicides that still work on water hemp? We do, and and we still believe in in most cases that's probably the best recommendation that we can make right now from a chemical standpoint. But as we talked in the last episode about the uncertainties about metabolic resistance, our hope is that five years from now we don't come to realize that's the worst thing that we could do for metabolic resistance. We just simply don't know right now. But the idea of the tank mixtures really was from a study that we focused on a landscape approach looking at the evolution of glyphosate resistance in water hemp. And that's based on a target site change. And we still stand behind those data and really believe that that still is probably the best way that we can continue forward uh, into the foreseeable future until, uh, from a chemical standpoint at least, until we know more, have more details, more understanding about the evolution of metabolic resistance. But the one thing, of course, that we do know that still holds true regardless of whether we're talking about target site resistance or metabolic based resistance is simply that if there's no seed at the end of the year, then there's no change in the frequency of the resistance alleles. And that's how you win because the weakness of water hemp or even worse yet, the weakness of palmer amaranth 
really lies in the fact that these seeds, these very, very small seeds of these dioecious pigweeds, they do not remain viable in the soil seed bank indefinitely. You're probably talking on average somewhere four to six to seven years at the most. And so any tactic that a farmer can use, whether it be chemical, non-chemical, heaven forbid we grab a hoe or a weed hook and spend a few hours walking a soybean field, but any technique that ensures that we don't have seed production in the field for maybe three or four years in a row, your population of water hip absolutely plummets. And that's how you win. Yeah, and that's important, you know, no one wants to, a lot of times, you know, we don't want to get on our neighbor about it, but especially in my area where it might just be one field here mm -hmm. or there, it is really important for you to get on your neighbor mm -hmm. and get it stopped mm -hmm. ahead of time. I mean, that's how we've managed Poland, I think, because, you know, Mark and his team has been really good about working with farmers to get it out mm -hmm. and, and not let it go yep. see but, you know, every now and then you'll find one of those, one of those neighbors that, you know, you just, you, you're probably not going to send a Christmas card to them this year and you're going to get the problem and we can sit here and, you know, and talk about that, bemoan that all we want to, but you got the problem. So really, what are you going to do with it now that you know that you have it? Really, the, literally the ball, you don't want the ball in your court. The ball, the ball is in your court now. Right. Palmer is the first weed that I've actually seen the noxious weed law used by one uh, farmer against another one. And I, I think farmers are, are reluctant to do that, but we talk about that um, for water hemp also. We have the benefit of your experience on water hemp. So our message is pretty clearly, you have to stop um, seed production. And so, and so we do talk about that. Uh, I, I'm hoping we have some kind of novel or we have some technology that comes along and helps us late season to deal, um, I think with some of that, but we've advocated a lot of those same um, type of strategies. You know, the best, the best position for Ohio farmers to be in literally is, is where many of them are now. They're in front of this. The worst place to be is let this thing pass in front of you because now you're playing catch up. And it, it, it's at least possible that a lot of the populations in Ohio may not necessarily quote unquote start where we started in Illinois 30 years ago because of how easily some of the seed is moved around. So if a six-way resistant population from Illinois is transported long distance in Ohio, now all of a sudden you're dealing with the exact same thing that we've dealt with for a long time. So again, staying in front of this, a few scattered plants here and there sure don't seem like a lot, but when you get females who are making hundreds of thousands of seed per year, any of those females that you let produce seed, remember that's another year of selection that's taking place. That's another year of genetic recombination that's taking place. And maybe that one female doesn't really look that bad in terms of a yield loss. But maybe 30% of her seeds now have evolved resistance to a new product in that field. Right, and we show those seed numbers. And mm -hmm. um, you know, farmers sometimes are like the rest of us with any problem, they'll we ride it too long. Mm -hmm. And you know, so the message that we try to get across, and I know our educators like Amanda do also is, you know, your time and your time from a few plants to a really major problem is shorter with Palmer and, all, and water hemp than it is um, with some other weeds. I think our resistance here, we already in the western part of the state, I think there's a, most of our populations have ALS glyphosate and a good number have PPO resistance already. I'm not sure if that developed from use of uh, Flexstar and Cobra or, you know, we had some movement in like you talked about. So we've collected seed for more 
this past fall, and our strategy will be to screen for HPPD and atrazine just to see if we're starting to pick up that mechanism as well and probably since site 15. Yep. So we're, we're unfortunately, while we are watching Palmer and Tampa the downwater have cut a little bit away from us. I think. Well, and I think the challenge is Palmer, you know, we didn't have it here before, right? right. We've had water hemp. So farmers are used to maybe seeing one or two or whatever, and now they really need to take notice of those yep. one or two more than they have. Right. Yeah, one or, one or two seem pretty innocuous, but unfortunately that, that one female or maybe they're both females. You know, when you think about the seed load from these females and, you know, again, it may not be enough to clog up a combine, but you're now running a $300,000 weed seed spreader across this field. And I've seen this literally for decades in Illinois. The farther north we go into Illinois, you don't run into fields initially that are overrun with water hemp. I've seen it hundreds of times where the initial infestation starts where? At the entrance to the field, right where the combine pulled in right where the field cultivator pulled in and deposited that seed. You go back and you keep an eye on that field for the next three years and you'll begin to see it streak across that field just following that combine pass right. every time. Yeah, we've seen that with Palmer. It's I mean, that's like the first time in my career I've sort of watched the things get established like that and going back to the same fields. You all have done some work with the, uh, the seed destructor, yes? Yes, the, the Harrington seed destructor. Right. Right. It's, uh, I think the numbers that Dr. Davis generated, if you just fed the water hemp seeds through it, it's like 97% efficient in terms of reducing viability. When you, the, the model that we had was one of the original ones that actually tows behind the combine. Now, the efficiency goes down simply because you're, you're losing some of that seed before it ever gets into the combine. But still what goes through the combine, I think for the water hemp, it was still 80, 80 to 87% effective. In reducing the viability of that particular seed, the surviving seed that maybe was still viable, if you tried to recover that the following spring, its viability was almost zero. So even though the, the Harrington itself didn't take it to zero viability, having that seed code even, even nicked, even abraded just a little bit might be enough to allow a soil fungus to enter into that seed or a bacteria into that seed. And over the course of a season or two, the viability of that seed also is gone. Right. There's been some work done in other states, too. I think I'm hearing that some states that work with that had some issues with um, because of uh, the weeds were too green coming through the combine and some seed. I don't know. There's some yeah. other possible logistical issues. I don't. There, there can be, but most of most, and, and I won't say all, but most of what has been done so far was with these, these earlier versions of the machine that actually towed behind the combine. They don't even make those anymore. So I think now there is quite a bit of interest in the machinery industry to look at these as sort of a new, either on a new combine, having this as a, as an add on, uh, in the back end of the combine or perhaps even retrofitting an older machine with one of these new ones. So it'll be an integrated system integrated within the machine itself. Um, and that's one that, again, we, we probably have less experience with that than what we do with the tow behind. Right. Any idea how much those cost? No idea. I'm hopeful we'll get some drone technology at some point that'll help us with late season scouting. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're doing some work and I know there's some technology out there. So my vision for that from a prevention standpoint where you have water hemp and you're taking out those plants that survive mm -hmm. we'll have a more efficient scouting mechanism that we'll have available. I'm not, I'm not sure what we'll do with the plants that we find in right. some of those fields, right. but um, hopefully that'll be available. Well, you know, that, that's an interesting thing because I, I, I go back and I remember the 
first instance that we found HPPD resistance was actually in a seed corn field in the central part of the state. And I walked that field, I think it was sometime in August or September, and uh, collected some, some female plants in there for seed. Well, after I left that field, they brought in some workers that physically cut, walked the, the corn rows and, and cut all the plants out, but they left them on the ground. And unfortunately, by that time, the seed were already viable, so they really did not do much to reduce the seed return that year because, you know, it, you don't necessarily have to have a black water hemp seed for it to be viable. Uh, some work that was done in Trano's lab, I think it takes only about nine days after that seed is, or that, that flower is pollinated before you have a viable seed. So it doesn't take very long. That's interesting. I've been told people they have a little bit bigger window than that, so I probably need to need to close that down. One of the things we do tell people, we're back in this pattern now, uh, I mean, of people deciding, well, I may not need residual herbicides because I have some effective options like dicamba, and one of our main selling points there, aside from just hitting them upside the head and saying that's a stupid <laughs> plan, is, uh, you know, the, the residual herbicides are our first line of defense against water hemp and palmer, and they give you a window in the lake where to take out plants before they produce seed. So, I mean, that's at least one selling point. So. In all, all the years that we've gone through, Mark, and all the different types of chemistry and products and programs that we've recommended, I go back to that publication in 1997 where we wrote that statement that water hemp is a species that cannot adequately be managed by one approach. And that, that statement has not changed. You know, over time, people have thought, well, we finally got it. We figured it out. We can do it with this product or that product, but we can't do that indefinitely. And again, we're not really poised to see a lot of new things enter into the marketplace. And I'll tell you a true story uh, here to finish up. But uh, a few months ago, I shared a cab ride with one of our former graduate students uh, when we were in New Orleans going to a meeting. And he actually used to work in early discovery work with one of the companies that still had an active herbicide discovery program. And his quote to me in the back of that cab was, you know, he said, you know what, we found a new mode of action. And he said, we were actually developing it and it looked fairly promising. But then we screen it against some of these water hip populations that have multiple resistance to it. And guess what? They couldn't kill it and they dropped it. And so that's another cost necessarily that a lot of farmers don't think about is that the resistance issues that we have today are already impacting the choices that they're going to have in the future or lack of choices in the future. Right. But we've been saying that mm -hmm. for years and you know, you're not going to have another tool and now we have, Mm -hmm. You keep getting the tools, although they're old herbicides. They're old. Yeah. It's, so eventually, yep. I think we'll wear them out. Mm -hmm. Well, um, I think we could talk about this for probably another hour. But um, thank you, Dr. Hager, Dr. Laus, for doing this. Um, we like to wrap up with some resources that people can go to if they're looking for management. So um, I know you guys have some stuff at Illinois, and you share what we have here at Ohio State. Yeah, really, uh, the, the, I think the first step, first recommendation that we make is, is the 2020 Weed Control Guide for Ohio, Indiana, and Illinois. That's a joint effort. Uh, we thank Dr. Laux for allowing Illinois to in on that publication several years ago. You know, we've tried to, to you know, make contributions to it as we can, tried to do the updates. We did a lot of the water hemp evaluation ratings, you know, came from, uh, from our side of the border. Um, really good information, a lot of holistic, practical information. Best take home again, I can I can leave with you is that if you're if you are ahead of water hemp in in Ohio, do everything you can to stay there. Even though it may not be always economically, you know, uh, ideal for you to do that, anything that you spend to ensure that seeds are not going to be produced that year, you're going to 
benefit. You're going to realize revenue from that decision for years in the future. Right. I think on top of that, we have the USB Take Action uh, program. So we have some resources there, um, some weed-specific fact sheets uh, and things like that. So In the webinar series, by the time we release this, those should be the recordings available. Right. So, yeah, so we're doing a USB Take Action webinar series February 6th through March 26th, every Thursday at 11 o'clock. We'll be getting information out. We have two weed scientists per slot, and um, Aaron will be on there. Talk about water hemp while people talking about uh, various things. So it should be a good series, I think. Well, thanks to you both. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to the Agronomy and Farm Management Podcast. Join us again in two weeks for our next episode.